This is The Corner Series, a McGuire Woods series exploring business and legal issues prevalent in today's private equity industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Thank you for joining another episode of The Corner Series. I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell, partner at McGuire Woods. Here at the Corner Series, we bring together thought leaders and deal makers to discuss private equity investing in healthcare. If you've been listening to our podcast, you'll know we kind of separate the Corner Series into a few different corners. We have a capital corner with uh, investors, a banker's corner with investment bankers, and a professor's corner where we discuss a little bit more technical aspects of investing. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined in our capital corner with Andrew Clark, managing partner at Levitt Equity Partners, one of the leading healthcare investors in private equity. Andrew, maybe start with a little introduction of yourself and Levitt, and then we can jump into some questions. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I I appreciate the opportunity to be here on your podcast. So yeah, I've been with uh, Levitt since we raised our first fund about nine years ago in 2014. We created the fund within Levitt Partners, which was a healthcare consulting firm. And that firm has now merged and sold to Health Management Associates. It's now an independent fund. We're separate organizations, but still have lots of ties and relationships there with the Levitt Partners HMA family of businesses. And so we kind of our background is really kind of a strong regulatory policy healthcare background stemming from our founder, Mike Levitt. Mike Levitt was the three-term governor of the state of Utah and then became secretary of health and human services in the Bush administration from 05 to 09. He really built a strong network of former kind of Medicare and Medicaid leaders, policymakers, regulators, as well as, you know, CEOs and executives of health systems, health plans, and healthcare corporations that helped stand up both those businesses, the consulting firm and and the investment firm. And so we leverage a lot of those relationships and the know-how, the knowledge, and the intelligence just around healthcare in the way we invest. So our, our, our themes and theses really stem from the idea of moving the United States healthcare system to value and the value-based care paradigm um, and improving our system in, in many ways, whether it's provider groups, payers, services, product you know, organizations, we think there's opportunities to continue to move the system, you know, towards better outcomes, lower costs, better patient access and experiences just across the continuum of care. So that's kind of how we think about investing. And it's been a pleasure to be with the organization from the founding and the beginning. And we're now investing out of our third fund. So that's a little bit of our, our story and history. So, Andrew, when I think about investing on a thesis of expanding value-based care, the primary area where I've seen a lot of investment is kind of aggregating primary care providers, and then that enables you to do uh, direct contracting with Medicare Advantage. And there's been several versions of that, but the whole thesis of value-based care extends well beyond primary care and Medicare Advantage ideas. Can you give your broad thesis of where you think there will be value-based care investment opportunities outside of the primary care slash Medicare Advantage universe? Absolutely. Yeah, value-based care is a very broad term. And yeah, it's easiest to, to identify, you know, where... Um, you know, the payment systems need to be refined through the primary care lens just because primary care providers control a lot of the downstream cost of, of patient care. Um, and so that you've seen a lot of examples of successful organizations engaging in value-based care payment arrangements in the primary care space. Many have done it successfully. 
I think we still have a lot of work to do as a market to continue to prove that out. But, you know, there's a lot of varieties of value-based care, a lot of varieties of, of payment structures. And so while, you know, global risk contracting, full kind of capitation is certainly kind of the goal, the ultimate way to do it. There are organizations that are engaging in, you know, shared shared risk, engaging in unique ways of negotiating with payers, how to, you know, how to show how outcomes can improve payer relationships, improve payment, whether that's through, you know, historically the, the bundled payment kind of model um, or through kind of upside sharing. There's been ways of tying, you know, commercial insurance, payer kind of rate improvements to outcomes. There's just a number of ways to think about engaging in value-based care. And that's, you know, really identifiable through the provider lens, but we've seen as well product businesses in the pharmacy and, de- and device side engaging with payers on ways to, you know, participate in bundles or participate in different ways of, of engaging in, in kind of a new payment paradigm. And so we're trying to find investments that we think kind of hit on all those fronts. And so while a lot of our investments certainly are in the provider space, we do have investments on the tech side, investments on the, the product side, certainly, you know, provider groups that are engaged in commercial or even in Medicaid that also are being thoughtful about kind of the value-based care world. I want us to come to the investments in technology surrounding value-based care. But before we do that, let's stay with the provider side a little bit. Kind of from where I sit, there's been a few sectors that have leaned more heavily into the kinds of contracting that you're talking about. From your perspective, is, is that opportunity to engage in value-based contracting, particularly with commercial payers, does that spread evenly across different sectors? Or are there particular sectors that lend to that sort of contracting more than others? Yeah, it's a great question. don't think it's even yet. I think over time, maybe we will see that. It's certainly any... Any patient care that is high cost, chronic, where there is opportunities to better manage the patient experience, keep patients out of hospitals, keep them well, keep them at home. And so, you know, you think of things like, you know, cardiac care, uh, pulmonary care. You think of things like, you know, diabetes and, and kidney care. There's a number of ways you can think of engaging with Medicare or commercial insurance providers. Uh, in those particular uh, kind of sectors to, you know, just better arrange how risk is shared and how payment is, you know, how the payment model works. And so we've been trying to be thoughtful about that as well. There are also areas where there's episodic care that, you know, maybe you can have a better kind of understanding of the risk around that episode. And so orthopedics has certainly had a little bit of that. You've seen that in, you know, bariatric care as well. We just made a, an investment in kind of a multi-specialty ASC roll-up called SurgeNet. We just announced this a couple of weeks ago with, with Fulcrum Equity Partners as the, the other sponsor on the deal, doing that as a partnership. And we're very excited about that. We think that's a space where there's opportunities to engage in you know, value-based kind of paradigms and arrangements with payers. Um, it's a space we really like. So we'll continue to think through kind of the surgical market and how that market engages in the value-based care world. We also have a, an investment in a women's care business. We think there's opportunities to demonstrate, you know, cost savings by better managing both kind of maternal fetal medicine and kind of that paradigm. But you think about 
you know, OBGYNs, they really act as a primary care doctor for most women. And so that's another opportunity to think through, you know, how do you engage with OBGYNs in a value-based kind of paradigm as well? So there's a number of sectors where you can focus on it, you know, outside of primary care. In primary care investing for value-based contracting, there seems like there's a, a priority given to scale that it's difficult to kind of take and manage that kind of risk unless you have scale. Do you think, A, that that is true, and B, does that translate into some of these other sectors where you're not talking kind of full capitation risk, you're talking about incremental risk? Are you able to kind of enter that fray with a little bit less scale? You can. I do think, you know, healthcare still is very much a local market, you know, game. Um, And so you see a lot of these primary care, value-based care groups start in one state. It certainly takes a little bit of scale in that state to be successful as you contract with Medicare Advantage plans and as you think about, you know, building the network or creating, you know, the, the system of clinics that work for you. And so you can certainly have, you know, on a small scale, a successful value-based care primary care group. And we've seen that. And sometimes that means there's, you know, partial fee-for-service on top of, you know, shared savings arrangements before you get into full global capitative risk. And so we've seen a number of primary care groups that, you know, learn over time because you have to learn a couple of new skills. One, you have to learn how to assess and manage risk, uh, but you also have to learn how to acquire lives and how to aggregate them. And then how to manage all the downstream costs and incentivize your physicians and work with them on the kind of the best way to treat patients and to stay engaged in the preventative medicine and that kind of care that, you know, prevents all the unnecessary downstream costs in our system. Um, and so, you know, we have a couple of investments. My Care Medical is one we've done. Florida, they became successful in Florida, have moved into Texas. We're also in P3 Health Partners. They started in Nevada and Arizona, have expanded into California and Oregon. So there's um, just a number of ways to start and show success before you, you know, really go after the scaled approach. I can certainly see this thesis around kind of being ahead and on the leading edge of investing in value-based care type businesses that there'll be more tailwinds than headwinds in that. But the, the wind has been slower than what I think people originally thought when there was the first movement and kind of government-led pilot programs and some commercial payer pilot programs around value-based care, it felt like we were on the edge of the entire system shifting, but that isn't exactly what's happened. How would you describe the pace of evolution towards value-based care? And do you see that changing in the near and intermediate future? That's a great question. I think we always thought that it would take a while for it to really mature. You know, you think about the Affordable Care Act in 2010 and kind of all of the initiatives coming out of that act that created some of the kind of innovation around value-based care, the approach that CMS is now taking. You know, we're 13 years in. uh, We thought this might be a 20 to 40-year kind of evolution. And maybe now we're trending towards that 40-year mark. So there's kind of ways to go. The market has to relearn how to engage in healthcare, and you've got to test a lot of models. Some which are going to be unsuccessful and change. And CMS certainly has done that in the way they've reorganized many of their value-based care programs. And they will continue to see that evolution and change, whether that's the Medicare Reach ACO program or whether you know changes to the Medicare Advantage uh, you know system. I think we'll continue to see evolution there. Um, and so there's a number of things that we like to see. We like to see organizations investing 
you know, into kind of those innovative models and showing what works and what doesn't. You have to. I do think that the COVID experience slowed things down. I think we were hitting a little bit of momentum in 2019 into 2020 that just kind of paused everything. I think we're now hitting another wave, you know, coming out of COVID, everyone's gathering themselves and there's a real need to find ways to save costs, particularly if you're a health system. Health system model might be fundamentally broken and needs to find different ways to engage with patients. Uh, and so you're going to see a number of investments, I think, from health systems and then from untraditional healthcare groups like the Amazons of the world. They're going to invest in ways of you know, engaging with patients and technologies to change the way healthcare you know, is paid for and administered. And so there's just a lot of evolution and change that's going to be you know, forthcoming. There may be a tipping point in the next five, 10 years where it accelerates. We'll kind of have to see how that plays out. But I do think, you know, there's, this is a long time or a long term kind of evolution. Investing directly into the risk takers in that equation is, is one approach to investing surrounding value-based care ideas. The other, of course, is to invest not in the risk taker, but in the various businesses and industries that are supporting that. When you think about that array of businesses, how, how would you segment that side of the value-based care investing market? And then let's maybe jump into a few of those segments. Yeah. So certainly on the tech side, technology, I think, will become a critically important part of value-based care, particularly in understanding patient data. Physicians really need to have access to the full patient medical record and their full history to fully assess the risk of that patient. And we're, we've seen a lot of change in kind of the EMR world and healthcare patient data world over the last 10 years. And I think there's another evolution coming in kind of digital health transformation um, that's going to, you know, enable, you know, hopefully, you know, another successful wave of value-based care. So that that's one. Another one is just the, the enablement companies, you know, enablement companies can really help provider groups establish the new skill sets on how to assess risk and how to set up their organization to you know, better manage patients. And so there's those kind of care model paradigms that enablement groups really have, have been designed to do. And so I think we'll see kind of those models continue to be successful to help you know, providers take on patient risk. We've made an investment on the tech side investment in a company called Be Well Connected Health. And this is a company that is in the patient data. They're really focused on kind of the fire API standards and interoperability of patient medical records and engaging with health systems and, and retailers from the pharmacy side, tech vendors, payers, you name it, with the idea of, you know, giving patients control of their medical record and allowing that patient to consent to share that entire medical record with their provider, with their pharmacy and give kind of full transparency. Once a patient does that, once a patient consents that record to be shared, it sits outside of HIPAA. And that provider can then use that record to work with that patient using their entire history. And that's what BeWell really is designed to do. They just signed and announced a, a contract with Samsung Health. They've got a contract with Walgreens they've announced. They're working with Clear on digital identity in healthcare. And so I think there, we're going to see a continuation of some of those digital health transformation trends that brings patient data 
into the hands of patients on, the, on an app on their phone, as well as to providers and pharmacy groups and you name it, that makes a much better kind of one-on-one -on -one patient-centric relationship that enables that kind of risk-taking, that kind of care. Otherwise, it's so hard to take risk on, on patients where you don't have good data. And so that's one of the bets we're making. I think that trend will continue. We'll see more and more players you know, develop you know, solutions that, that attack that market. Let's talk a little bit about kind of disruptors on the horizon. And I'll, I'll throw a few out there and then you can tell me if you think that they're overrated or underrated as to their kind of disrupt, disruptive potential. You mentioned one, so let's take a non-healthcare participants, the Amazons of the world. How disruptive can they be to this evolution towards value-based care? And do you think that they are being properly evaluated as to that disruptive uh, potential or being uh, uh, overrated? I think we need to take them very seriously. Very innovative companies like Amazon, like Walmart, Google, you know, these companies, I think they see a massive opportunity in a very large healthcare market that's extremely fragmented and needs to change. And you think about you know, if you're Walmart and you're Amazon or you're some other organization that's massive and needs to find ways to continue to grow at scale, you need to tap into new markets. And healthcare is absolutely one of the best markets in terms of size and need to tap into. And so I think we're going to see continuation of that trend with, with uh, those kind of non-typical healthcare organizations acquiring and developing solutions in healthcare, whether that's you know, directly in the provider side like Amazon, you know, acquiring a primary care asset, or on the pharmacy and product and distribution side. Um, I think we could continue to see movement in that direction um, where they own primary care, they own some pharmacy assets, they own different home-based, you know, medical providers. And, you know, I think they've demonstrated an ability to be innovative and learn fast. So certainly some of the innovation or, you know, initiatives from Amazon and, and others have failed and they've regrouped and gone in a different direction and started over. And so I think we're going to, we have to take them very seriously. And I think, you know, if you're a health system or you're a health plan, you know, you, you've got to really watch closely what they're doing. You know, there is a, there is a future day where we as patients might be accessing, you know, a large part of our care through some of those organizations rather than a traditional hospital or health system. Amazon already comes to my house three times a day. One more visit won't hurt anything, I suppose. Um, next disruptive effect, payer and provider convergence, whether that's United, Optum, take your pick. Yeah. How disruptive is that convergence? Uh, overrated, underrated? I think it is disruptive. It's been going on for a while. I do think we'll continue to see that consolidation of the kind of the payvider organizations just because, you know, if you're a large provider group or a health system and you're staring down kind of the realities of your cost structure and the realities of payment, you're going to need to learn how to take risk and how to manage patients in a very different way. And the fastest way to learn that skill is to acquire a payer that already knows how to manage risk and then create a collective solution for that market. And so I do think we're going to see at least a need for major health systems, one, to continue to consolidate the provider market 
and integrate payers into that solution. I think there's a day where we continue to see, you know, major health systems and providers dominate large portions of kind of the United States, whether that's Kaiser, Geisinger, Intermountain Healthcare, you know, Providence, others. Uh, I, I think that's kind of the future of the health system world is consolidation and integration with a payer solution. And I think that's the model that'll be successful. Uh, fee-for-service has become more and more unattractive. And I think that's CMS's goal, is to continue to make fee-for-service more and more unattractive. And if there will be groups that'll milk it as long as they can, but in the long run, that'll be an unsuccessful strategy. Last one, artificial intelligence. In the legal community where I live, there's lots of angst that AI is going to uh, transform in unknown ways how legal services are provided and paid for and everything. What's your assessment on the impact of AI on the search towards value-based care? Is it overrated, underrated? Is it going to make it easier for more people to enter that fray or just different? Uh, how would you uh, comment on AI's role in this? Yeah, I think AI has potential to be incredibly disruptive. I think the challenge is going to be how does the regulatory infrastructure catch up to the innovation? In terms of like, can the FDA allow AI to be a diagnostic tool and those sorts of things? We've already seen early stage developers of AI and pathology, you know, diagnosing cancer at a kind of a higher and more accurate rate than humans. How, how do you factor all of that into a diagnostic that the FDA and, and, and our regulatory body can understand and handle? So I think, I think we'll continue to see AI make inroads, and it might come faster than we think. The, the innovation is so quick. One thing that I'll mention is one way we're seeing efficiency being developed, and I think that's the first way AI will affect the market, is making providers more efficient. So we have an investment in a kind of a provider group that services skilled nursing and ALFs with, you know, behavioral health and, and some primary care solutions. And, you know, finding efficiency amongst those provider groups is very important, one, for retention, but also to prevent burnout. And we've seen that across the marketplace, you know, providers, nurses and doctors and mid-levels, they're burned out. And a lot of the burnout out actually comes from non-patient time where they're spending a whole lot of their resources and time and even weekend and off time hours documenting and coding. Um, and AI, I think, now has many solutions that are solving that problem. So this, this business, Aventus, has partnered with Ambience, an AI tool, and we've had a lot of success actually rolling this out where this tool can listen to the provider interaction, provide a, a basically ascribing AI tool that creates the note that the doctor needs to review and sign off on and, you know, helps to recommend the right coding for the interaction and doctor needs to review and sign off on. And that can save a meaningful amount of time, improve kind of patient care, improve provider burnout, provider retention, all those things that are really important for, you know, those types of organizations. I think we're going to see, see more and more of those types of solutions create the efficiency that's needed in healthcare to be able to drive down costs and engage with patients in a new way. At some point, I think the promise of diagnoses and other things in healthcare will come, but it, that's really a regulatory question. Andrew, I think we'll uh, call it uh, a day there. We could have talked about this for a long time, but uh, I want to thank you for joining me. This was a ton of fun. It's a super interesting area and there's nothing but more to come in it. Uh, I think you guys are well positioned uh, to be on the leading edge of that evolution. Uh, so we'll have to see what happens. 
Well, Jeff, thank you for, so much for the time today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this installment of the Corner Series. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.